You may recall, or if your Bibles are open, and I do encourage that, John chapter 6. It's one of the longest chapters in the entire New Testament anyway. We've got Psalm 119 of great length in the Old Testament. But John 6 is one of the longer chapters in the New Testament. And you'll see that John 6 begins with great excitement. You have these miraculous healings that are being performed by Jesus, and these miracles have attracted quite a following, quite a crowd. Adding to the miracles that he performed, Jesus multiplies bread and fish of such quantities that it's able to feed over 5,000 people. As you might expect, this miracle of feeding 5,000 people created further incentive for the crowd to follow Jesus around and stay close to him. If you look at verse 24, you'll see that the people were so enamored with the multiplication of loaves that they actually followed him across the Sea of Galilee in small boats just to keep up with him. But you'll notice as Jesus persists with his teaching, the people begin to grumble. As he persists in preaching, the people begin to complain. They were hearing Jesus make claims that they weren't comfortable with. For example, on repeated occasions, at least five in this chapter alone, Jesus claims to have originated from heaven. He says he is the one who comes down from heaven. And, and also in a variety of ways in this chapter and in, and in other places, Jesus equates himself with God the Father, suggesting that the two are one and the same. And finally, it appears that the manner in which Jesus explains in this chapter the necessity of feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood was too much for the people to bear. Jesus, being aware of this growing dissatisfaction with his teaching, asked the crowd, Do you take offense at this? then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? Essentially, well, if this offends you, what are you going to do when you see me ascend into heaven? If you're following in the text, you'll see things take a turn for the worse in verse 66, where we read, After this, many of the disciples turned back, and no longer walked with him. Think of it. Jesus began his ministry by calling 12 men. And then he proceeds to perform several miracles. Miraculous healings. Miracles such as turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana. Miracles such as healing a paralytic. Miracles such as feeding 5,000 plus with bread and fish. Miracles such as walking on the sea. Jesus goes from 12 followers to 5,000 plus followers in very short order. The people are marveling at his abilities. But as his message gets stronger... 
as his message gets more bold, people begin to walk away. If this were happening in our day, my suspicion is Jesus would have had a public relations director. Well, I don't know that, but I'm imagining this. In our day, if this was happening, Jesus' public relations director would step in and he would attempt to correct the course. He would say, Jesus, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but we've been losing a lot of people lately. And our analytics tell us that the more miracles you do, the bigger our crowd gets. But the more you preach, and the longer you preach, the more people we lose. Jesus, if you're going to maintain the largest ministry in the region, you need to do more miracles and teach a lot less. But it appears that Jesus isn't as interested in a large following as he is in a genuine following. In very short order, the ministry of Jesus went from 12 men to 5,000 plus people back down to 12 again, or 11, depending on how you count followers of Jesus. And at this point, Jesus turns to the remaining 12 and says, Do you want to go away as well? Is this too difficult for you? Do you need to leave also? Peter answers. And do you resonate with this? Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There's a lot going on in this passage. And it's difficult to deal with the latter portion of John 6 without bearing in mind what has just come before it. So I want to help us work through this chapter by identifying for you what I see as three prominent layers in this chapter. Three prominent layers in John 6. The first layer I'd like us to call the gift. The gift. The second layer that I see in John 6 we'll call the resistance. And the third layer we'll call the promise. So we have the gift, the resistance, and the promise. But first to the gift. The gift of God is what? The gift of God is eternal life. And as you track with John's gospel, the metaphors change over time. It goes from the gift of God is living water springing forth to eternal life. And then the metaphor changes to the bread of heaven. But they all point to the same thing. The gift of God is eternal life. Jesus preaches and he offers the gift of eternal life and invites us to receive it by faith. In John, specifically John 6.33 we read, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. 
And then you have Paul's summary in Ephesians 2 where he says, For grace you have been, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this isn't your own doing, it's the gift of God. So we refer to the gift. The gift is eternal life, and the gift is the good news. Jesus announces that He is our salvation, and if we believe in Him, we receive the gift of eternal life. Well, doesn't that sound terrific? It does. But we need to remember what's taking place in this text. Twelve disciples turns into several thousand disciples, dwindles down to 12, again, or 11, depending on how you count followers. What has happened? Is it simply that Jesus' message was too strong? Or is something else in play here that helps us account for the diminished numbers? Well, this leads us to the second layer of the chapter, which I've called the resistance. Listen to how Jesus responds to Peter's reply at the end of the chapter. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now that may sound harsh. I mean, if we went around saying that so-and-so is a real devil, you know, we'd say, you settle down, that's not very nice. But this is what Jesus does. And Jesus, who knows the heart of man, says that this one, where he doesn't identify him yet, but it's identified for us in the text, that Judas is a devil. And that sounds harsh to us. But Jesus is providing us with a signal that there is more going on than what we're able to readily observe. What we're finding here is that in the invisible realm, in a realm we cannot see nor detect, in the invisible realm there is a battle going on. There is a war that is taking place. We have some other gospel passages to help us. At the Last Supper, recorded later on in John 13, we read the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Jesus. So the devil is influencing the heart of a person, Judas. And perhaps you call Jesus' warning to Simon Peter, where he says to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. That he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I could give you other examples, but I give you these two uh, with, with great purpose. I want to give you two examples to show that the devil doesn't simply affect the hearts of unbelievers. That's Judas. The devil doesn't simply affect unbelievers like Judas, but he also has a strong interest in disabling followers of Jesus. Now, I don't know that he can influence followers in the same manner that he can influence unbelievers, but he has great interest 
and disabling the effectiveness of a believer in Jesus. Now, some of you are sitting here thinking, you know, I haven't heard Pastor Bryn preach very much. Does he talk about the devil a lot? And I don't. I am not one who sees the devil in everything. I don't see the devil around every corner. And I doubt you would ever hear me ascribe any sin in my life to saying, well, the devil made me do it. That's just not what I think. And yet, I'm not shepherding you properly. If I fail to warn you of a very real enemy hiding in the thicket. And we need to be warned. As Peter says, your adversary, your adversary, the devil, prowls around not like a kitten, but like a lion seeking someone to devour. What am I saying? We have been offered the gift of eternal life, but the resistance to our growth in the faith is formidable. And that's what we see playing out at the end of John 6. What we see is that not everyone who starts out interested in Jesus finishes with Jesus. You will find that there are people who at first express keen interest in discovering who Jesus is and what role he might play in their life. Individuals who might even begin coming on a Sunday morning and attend services like this with great regularity. Individuals who might even be motivated and compelled to join a church committee who would eventually walk away from the faith altogether. Let me state what is so obvious from this text. Being a Christian is hard. Being a Christian is very difficult. And the reason why being a Christian can be so hard is because the resistance is real. But let me give you some encouragement. We're not alone in fighting the resistance. We're not on our own. And frankly, this should be a massive motivator for belonging to a company such as this. Think of it, the devil's targeting you all week long. The devil's beating you up by a variety of means. You come in on Sunday morning, you're walking wounded as it were. You stumble in here on a Sunday morning and what do you learn? You're not alone, you're not the only one. There are others who are facing the resistance as you are. There are others in similar battles, people who are fighting for the survival of their marriage. Others who are fighting to keep their children on course. Others who are battling depression, battling anxiety, battling loneliness. You come here and you find that you're not alone in your addiction. You're not alone in fighting temptation. We don't gather on Sunday morning 
because everything is terrific. We gather, I hope, because we're aware of our desperate need of help. We gather and we discover that while we struggle to hang on to Christ, we learn that He has a firm grip on us. We gather and we're reminded that God has everything under control. None of what you're going through is a shock to God. And none of what you're going through is going to thwart His purposes for you. The Christian life is hard. It tempts a person to walk away. And to look for easier paths. But I want you to know. You can endure the resistance. You can get through this. You can win this battle. John in one of his letters gives a wonderfully encouraging quote. 1 John 4 verse 4. He says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in this world. Who is he talking about? Greater is he who is in you, that's the Holy Spirit, than he who is in this world, that's the prince of darkness, that's the devil, our adversary. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in this world. And that's not even the best news I'm telling you today. That's not the promise that's going to be in our outline. The promise actually comes earlier in John chapter 6. And if you don't have this underlined in your Bible, I know some people don't like underlining in their Bible. I do. And if you do, underline verse 39. Where Jesus says, well, maybe I'll let the ambulance pass. He'll give you a chance to look for verse 39 if your Bible's are open. John 6, verse 39. This is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That's the promise. We see in the Gospels that there are imitators, That there are people who are interested in Jesus, but they have not come to a place of saving faith. And so when when the resistance comes, they flee. So there are imitators. But there are genuine believers who face the resistance, and the word in Scripture is that none will be lost. Paul puts it this way to the Philippians. He says, I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. It is my great privilege to say to you this morning that the God who saves you will keep you. The God who saves you will preserve you to the end. If you truly belong to Him, He has you in His grip. And His grip will not loosen. He will, he will keep you to the end. And I know it doesn't always feel like that. 
I know it sometimes feels like the devil is winning. It sometimes feels that the devil is getting his way. It sometimes feel, it feels as if your faith is weakening and your faith is unraveling. The Christian life is hard because the resistance is real. And what I want you to hear this morning is that God is in control of the resistance. The resistance can't do anything without God's permission. The resistance has been carefully measured out by a God who knows all things, all variables, how everything's going to play out in the end. And God's design for the resistance is not to break you. God's design for the resistance is to strengthen you. As the hymn puts it, the flame shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. Dear friends, you have been given the gift of eternal life. And I urge you to receive it by faith. The Christian life is hard because the resistance is real. But thankfully God is in control and He promises to keep you to the end. God's design is for you to confess as Peter did, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Dear friends, I urge you, whatever you're going through at the moment, whatever resistance you're experiencing, whatever trials you're dealing with, God is in control. He means good for you. Keep walking with Jesus and don't give up. Amen.